Welcome back to America's leading higher education podcast, The EdUp Experience, where we make education your business. Hosts Dr. Joe Salustio, Elizabeth Liba, and producer Elvin Freites bring you the brightest and most influential minds in higher education today. We explore innovations, ideas, and issues in higher education and beyond, and hopefully have a little fun along the way. Now let's get to it. Welcome back, everybody. This is the EdUp Experience, where we make education your business, interviewing the brightest and most influential minds in higher education today. This is Dr. Joe Salustio. With me, always present, the phenom, ladies and gentlemen, Elizabeth Liva. Liz, how are you doing today? I'm doing amazing. Thank you for asking. How are you? Uh, you know, I'm doing, I'm doing well. You know, my life doesn't change all that much, Liz. I get up and roll out of bed and roll right into my desk. That's three feet away. So, um, you know, <laughs> so, so it's the way we are these days. That's it. Well, new normal, right? New normal. Well, speaking of, uh, speaking of the new normal and speaking of, uh, of amazing guests, we have one for you today. On the line, Dr. Rusty Monholland. He's the president and executive director of the South Carolina Commission on Higher Education. Sir, how are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for, for being here. It's really an honor to have you on. Uh, your experience in higher ed is vast. Uh, we want to get into it, but you know, the most important question we can ask you is, how is your health? How is your family during these uh, uh, very strange times we live in today? Uh, well, thank you for asking. Uh, my family's doing well. We're a little spread out around the country. I have a son in Kansas, one in Texas, uh, one in Missouri, still in college, and uh, my daughter's a freshman at the University of South Carolina here in, in Columbia. So uh, everyone's doing well. Uh, we're, we're healthy. Uh, so we're very grateful and very thankful. That's great. Well, and, and uh, you know, look, th this is, is going to be a really interesting conversation because, uh, you know, state regulation, state um, uh, guidelines on, on uh, return to school, return to work um, are vi vary. Uh, and, uh, you know, your perspective is going to be very valuable to our audience. So why don't you just give us a quick once over, you know, what's happening at the Higher Education Commission in South Carolina what are your big priorities right now in terms of, of higher ed and, and what you're overseeing? Well, we have uh, a several, you know, several things going on. The, the pandemic notwithstanding, we have uh, lots of other responsibilities, uh, statutory and, and other, uh, that have to be taken care of as well. And since March, uh, the pandemic has really become a priority in a lot of, way, a lot of ways and taken a good deal of our, our bandwidth. Uh, one of the things we had been working on was trying to implement a, a strategic plan that the commission had uh, adopted a couple of years ago, but uh, that had to be put on hold because of the, uh, uh, the pressures and stress brought on by the pandemic. As it uh, broke and, and uh, began to spread a little more broadly across South Carolina, um, we pivoted, pivoted a lot of our work to focus on trying to provide support and assistance uh, to the institutions we work with, uh, primarily the public 
universities and technical colleges uh, as they uh, also had to make a, a very serious uh, pivot from uh, in-person to remote instruction in, in last spring. So that's, uh, you know, it's been an, an interesting uh, six or eight months. Um, you know, we, we kind of pulled back to focus on the pandemic, but I think we've slowly been moving. Uh, you know, that's still a priority, something we still focus on, but we, we've also come to realize we've got other responsibilities and other work we need to, uh, to get back to. Can you get back to that work as quickly as you'd like to, given that you're your uh, organization is also disrupted in at least in some degree, along with every other organization in the world right now. Are you able to really, you know, uh, marshal the resources to start tackling those big issues that you have at hand? I, I think so. Um, I think we it's we're still in a learning process of, of how to do some of this. Um, like most institutions, most organizations, we started a meeting remotely via Zoom or WebEx, um, you know, shortly after, um, you know, in, in late March, early April. Uh, and, and, and I think we've become more adept at uh, figuring out how to engage with one another, uh, engage with our stakeholders and, and uh, collaborators uh, to, um, you know, pursue, pursue the goals and objectives that, uh, that are laid at our feet. Uh, so we're getting better at that. Uh, I think we have a, a ways to go to really marshal all the resources. Uh, I think one of the things we found out about our organization, and I think perhaps other organizations have discovered this as well, is that uh, our staff has worked very effectively and very productively, I think, remotely. Uh, we were able to get uh, them the resources, the equipment, tools they needed to do their work. And with a, a few exceptions of uh, folks having to come in because we had uh, sensitive material that we didn't want to leave the uh, building, um, you know, we've been able to, uh, to, to do most of our work uh, and do it very well remotely. So much in, so, in fact, that uh, we are in the process of offering to our staff the opportunity, uh, even when the pandemic is, is over, uh, to continue to have this kind of flexibility in their schedule and, and work part of their uh, regular schedule uh, remotely. Uh, we've had a, a lot of uh, interest in that, a lot of support from the staff, especially uh, folks who have family responsibilities or or other uh, life responsibilities that gives them additional flexibility to, uh, to manage and, and have that balance between both their, their personal life and their, their work life. Yeah, balance is, is it's crazy important right now. It is. And, and really hard to achieve, it feels like sometimes. Yeah, that's the, go yeah. ahead. It, it's also led us, uh, we're uh, not by choice, it just kind of happened, but uh, the lease on our current office space is up and we're in the process of relocating. Uh, we're only moving one floor up, but uh, still a, a bit of a logistical challenge. Uh, but because there was such a good response to uh, remote work and, and we feel very good about uh, you know, how well we're able to work uh, in that uh, mode, uh, we were able to reduce uh, our footprint, the amount of office space we 
uh, require by almost 50%, um, which uh, has led to some cost savings and, and uh, we're very, very pleased about that. Uh, we're, uh, we think it's gonna be good for us. We're a small agency, only about uh, just uh, less than 50 uh, full-time employees. So um, I think it's gonna be good for us. That's good that you're embracing the future because the future is, uh, you know, could be unlike what we've experienced in the past, which I think can be a good thing if it's embraced in the right way. You know, the, the higher education landscape is uh, facing an uncertain future uh, right now. Um, we've seen across the country, and I'm sure this is the case for South Carolina, we've seen some uh, return to campus schools. Uh, we've seen a massive shift to online learning. Uh, we've seen uh, discussions, some in practice uh, of mergers, acquisitions, synthetic mergers, resource sharing. Uh, and ultimately, in some cases, uh, institutions are projected to close. And I'm sure that's, is that, well, I'm not sure that's, a, I'm wondering if that is something on your radar in South Carolina and keeping a close eye on the um, merger space the closure, uh, the closures and how that affects students across the state, you know, is that something that you guys are continually tracking and taking a peek at? Yeah, we're, a, like other, um, uh, several other states, we're a coordinating body. So we're not a, uh, don't have governing authority over our institutions. Uh, so many of those kinds of decisions would not be made by us. Uh, at the commission, uh, but by the board of trustees or governors of, of the particular institution. Uh, we also have a, uh, we have a good relationship with the independent or private colleges and universities, but uh, they operate in their, their own space. Uh, so speaking for the public institutions, uh, at this point right now, we feel pretty good about where our public institutions are in terms of uh, financial stability, their the, the fiscal outlook, uh, kind of the uh, you know projecting ahead for the next six months or so. Uh, we think we think things look pretty pretty solid, pretty good. Uh, I don't think there's any public institution in in danger of closing. Um, you know, some are are having to make some very difficult uh, decisions about cutting costs or finding other uh, streams of, of revenue. But uh, so far they've uh, been able to manage the pandemic and manage the uh, financial challenges that come with it. Um, and, and I can't say for certain, but it, it would not surprise me if some of our perhaps smaller independent institutions uh, that don't have that support from the state that our public institutions do uh, may be pushed a little harder up against the wall and may be facing uh, a much more uh, dire situation. But I can say, interestingly, um, you know, enrollment in South Carolina generally has been flat. A few of our institutions are down, and, and a few are down fairly significantly, uh, you know, um, in the eight, nine percent or so. Uh, but overall, uh, enrollment has been pretty flat. So uh, that tuition revenue will, will uh, bode well for uh, the financial stability of our institutions. Uh, I think it's the auxiliary revenues and, and just the uncertainty that comes with this pandemic that 
uh, is creating a lot of the financial challenges right now. Yeah, Liz, that's something we talk about quite a bit here. And, and I think every president from any state has come out and talked about the financial tightening a little bit and what that's doing to the institution and ultimately the students. So, you know, um, it, it's something we highlight. Yeah, for sure, because the the return on investment and students trying to navigate as a parent of a Gen Z student, she's a sophomore, and it's definitely a consideration thinking about how to balance everything and the, the finances is definitely a big part of it. Can you talk to us a little bit about some of the the financial, I, I, I noticed that with South Carolina, there seems to be a pretty robust uh, offering in terms of different financial um, supplementary, whether it be scholarship programs or different other programs that are available. Uh, how are schools able to leverage and, and how does that help with students in terms of the financial planning? And, and is that a part of, in terms of the advisory aspect of it? of helping the students to navigate that financial piece and, and trying to make um, the, the, the financial costs and, and obligations of school a little bit more um, manageable for students and for the parents? Uh, yes, um, our agency uh, administers this uh, for the public institutions, the state's financial aid programs. Uh, we have really a tremendous uh, array of merit-based financial aid programs, uh, mm -hmm. Palmetto Fellows, Life and Hope. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, we do not have as much in terms of need-based uh, financial aid and financial assistance, at least at the state level. Uh, mm -hmm. Many of our institutions do provide, uh, you know, through institutional means, uh, that kind of support. Um, so yes, we, we work with uh, our institutions. Um, you know, they have their uh, own efforts to try to educate students, but we try to do that at the uh, state level as well uh, in cooperation with other state agencies. Uh, the treasurer's office, uh, for example, there's the Student Loan Corporation in South Carolina that is uh, very keen on uh, trying to advance uh, financial literacy. There are uh, other, um, smaller organizations that are, are focused on that. Um, we've been very fortunate. The uh, educational lottery uh, has been very stable through this pandemic. And so the dollars that it generates that goes directly to scholarships uh, has not put any of those in jeopardy. So uh, we, we're, we feel pretty good about being able to continue to support uh, students, at least those students that um, you know, earn and, and have those uh, merit-based scholarships. Uh, the concern, I think, comes with, uh, you know, this, the, the neediest of our students, uh, really those that for whom, uh, you know, even a, a $300 um, car bill or, you know, a, a drop transmission or a, a flat tire uh, could really, uh, you know, force them to, to drop out of, out of college. Uh, and that's been a focus of some of the work we've been doing uh, in addition to trying to uh, address the pandemic is uh, starting to focus on how do we provide the kind of support and assistance to uh, all of our citizens, to all of our students, so that they have the, the opportunities, the access and the means to uh, 
uh, not only access higher education, but to, to be successful in higher education. Yeah, that's always a challenge, right? I, I went to uh, state school on an, uh, a merit scholarship. And, and I think it's always something where you're looking at making sure that not only students that are obviously academically um, elite and are able to meet the challenges, but also students that might be average student, but have a lot of potential and have the need and not necessarily have the resources. So I definitely see that that's a challenge. How do you think in terms of higher education, how do you think we'll be able to navigate that as we go into the next few years? We know that economically, we're just still trying to put the pieces together. The pandemic has been a challenge. Um, what can we do as a sector to try to make uh, school more um, financially uh, not as challenging for students and for the parents? And how do you see online learning and maybe looking at the dynamics and the cost uh, factor that goes into um, maybe the increase in online learning being a part of that strategic plan for a lot of the state schools moving forward? Well, it, the, the response, the, the answer to that is not any one thing. I think it's gonna yeah. take a combination of things to, to really uh, address the, the issue, the matter fully. Online learning, um, you know, for 20 years or more, you know, has been touted as, um, you know, a low cost alternative uh, when in reality, at least, uh, you know, with, uh, you know, traditional brick and mortar institutions that begin to offer online courses, there's not that much difference in the cost mm -hmm. of delivering an online course versus uh, an in-person course. Uh, most of the cost is tied up in the, you know, the faculty uh, mm -hmm. member, the, the person who developed and actually teaches the course. Uh, so the, those institutions that have uh, you know, tried to market themselves as low cost uh, alternatives by using online education are adopting different models where they're uh, you know, kind of diversifying the, the entire learning process uh, across different uh, individuals within, uh, within the group. Uh, I think we've got to take a look at um, different perhaps business models uh, probably more, what probably has more value and, and potential than even online learning, in my view, is competency-based education. Mm. Um, you know, letting students demonstrate what they know and work more at their own pace, uh, and then, uh, you know, let them demonstrate that competence, and then they can move on. Um, you know, if, if you're not investing a lot of of resources into, uh, you know, a large section of uh, an English or a history or a psychology course, uh, and you know, it, it they're you're you're really just trying to assess the student's knowledge and, and understanding of a particular subject matter. I think you can begin to bring down some of the cost of higher education. Um, Speaking my language, right? Speaking my language, right, Joe? <laughs> Well, uh, I think there are, uh, you know, there are, uh, you know, credit for prior learning uh, can mm -hmm. help a lot of students. I mean, 
I'm a firm believer in, in you know, you, you get what you pay for. And mm -hmm. we, we need, if we want quality education, we have to invest in it. And, you know, Agreed. there's a value to that. There's a cost to that. And we should be mm -hmm. willing to shoulder that. Uh, but I think there are ways that we can provide access for other students, adult learners, for example, mm -hmm. uh, you know, either through prior learning assessment or competency-based or, or even trying to manage how classwork, coursework is scheduled uh, to meet their needs, uh, you know, so that they can, they can get in and, and take courses in, in larger chunks and, and actually work towards a credential in a very, uh, you know, uh, expedited fashion, you know, that can begin to bring down the, the costs of, of education as well. Uh, and, and, you know, more need-based support, um, you know, there's a lot of argument, there's a lot of discussion uh, around, uh, you know, promise programs or free college. Um, I, I think we need to uh, as a as a society, as as a community of, of people, uh, start thinking more about the value of higher education and not necessarily the cost of higher education. Mm -hmm. uh, it does, uh, you know, we benefit uh, personally from the degrees we hold, uh, but we also benefit from the degrees that other people hold as well. And and I think that public good, that public benefit often gets le uh, left out of the, uh, the equation. And, and uh, so thinking of it more in terms of, of value and an investment instead of just simply the cost, um, you know, it, it, it puts it in a, in a different perspective, I think. Hey everyone, this is Joe just reminding you to check out our website at www.edupexperience.com where you can find and explore all of the content that we've released under the EdUp Experience brand, including multiple podcast series, EdUp Elites, EdUp Embedded, and EdUp Experts. You can also suggest topics or guests for our podcast. Then head over to YouTube, check out our channel, The EdUp Experience, and you're going to find that my amazing co-host, Elizabeth Liba has started a new web series called EdUp Unplugged, where she talks about racism in America with special guests coming on that web series. We've got a lot going on at the EdUp Experience. Again, check out our website at www.edupexperience.com. Now let's get back to our guest. That's a really good point. You mm -hmm. said a, a, a couple of things in there um, that uh, deserve a little bit of, uh, of discussion. You, you, there is a movement. I don't know if you I would call it a movement, but there's certainly people out there in the higher education thought leadership sphere that are doing the complete opposite. They're talking less about the value of the college degree and more about the cost and the return on investment being directly related to financial uh, investment and benefit. You're saying it in the other direction, meaning that yes, cost is a factor, but let's talk about the output of the education. What is a student receiving? How does that help society uh, in the long run? What, what do you say ge generally when you hear that argument that you know it's cost, it's benefit, it's it's ROI? Does that take out the quality of education from decision making? I'm not. Um deaf to those arguments. I, I certainly understand them. And, uh, 
you know, I, I think we need to help people understand, um, you know, if, if they're pursuing a degree, um, how much can they put of their money or their resources into it and, you know, and expect a reasonable return? I mean, you know, we've heard some, you know, the, the horror stories of people who, you know, have $100,000 in student debt and, you know, uh, have a job that pays $30,000 or, you know, whatever. Um, I, I think the, you know, sometimes that's can be a little misleading. The average amount of debt is, you know, less than 30,000, I think. Uh, and, and there's still value, I think, um, uh, you know, that comes from uh, that degree, whether it's an associate degree or a baccalaureate degree or what have you. Um, I, I think we have to help people have better financial understanding or, or monetary understanding. Uh, you know, it just doesn't make a lot of sense to, you know, expend $100,000 for a job that's only going to pay $25,000. Now, $100,000 for a job, you know, that, uh, you know, as a doctor or an attorney, for perhaps, you know, that might make sense for certain, um, for certain individuals, uh, you know, if they have the aptitude and, and desire. But I, I also think we have to remember, um, you know, we need social workers, um, you know, we need, um, you know, those people that perform a lot of those jobs that just don't pay a very high salary. You know, that, that's what keeps our economy going and what, uh, you know, keeps our, our society and, and our communities held together. Uh, you know, if we only looked at uh, or only offered those jobs that produced a very high return on investment, uh, you know, I think we would start to see shortages in a number of, of different key areas uh, that uh, would, uh, you know, certainly not contribute very much to our, our quality of life. I'm a history major, uh, you know, that's my, my background. Uh, you know, and, and the humanities and social sciences actually are, are some of the best investments in my view, uh, because they don't cost that much to produce. Uh, you know, their faculty aren't demanding, you know, huge salaries, uh, library resources, uh, you know, uh, they don't require a lot of lab space and, you know, those expensive uh, costs. So uh, I actually think philosophy and history and English are, are good degrees, uh, even in a, a modern society and have a good return on investment. Say it louder for the people in the back. <laughs> Well, That's I, right. Like for, for, some, for someone that teaches English composition, those are, that's music to my ears right now. <laughs> well, full disclosure, my wife and I are both uh, historians by, by training, and my son's a psychology major, and I think our daughter's going to be a history major as well. Uh, but those are good degrees. Uh, and, you know, if you, if you look at what employers say they want, and, and of course, you know, we need we need a good mix of degrees and, and credentials. We need technical, more technical base, more technical training, you know, whether it's certified nurse, uh, nurses aides or, uh, you know, uh, precision manufacturing or whatever, you know, we need those things as well. Uh, but so many employers, especially in the new information economy, they want people who can uh, 
figure things out, who can understand and, uh, you know, uh, and present an answer, uh, you know, write clearly, communicate clearly, uh, work with other people. Uh, and I think, you know, uh, my field of history does that. I think English can help you do that. Uh, psychology, philosophy, uh, there are any number of, uh, of uh, so-called, you know, low return on investment fields that produce the kind of skills and knowledge and abilities that a lot of employers are looking for. So you're ta- you talk about empl- uh, what employers are looking for. You know, I was going through the higher education plan on um, uh, the Commission on Higher Education for South Carolina website, and goal number three in the higher education plan, this is way back, uh, looks like in, in as far back as 09, but it's still there, is to increase workforce training and educational services in South Carolina. How important is that? How important is the workforce training aspect of higher ed to the economy in South Carolina? Well, when I was in uh, the classroom, I, I taught uh, U.S. history for over 15 years. Uh, you know, I was helping my students prepare for the workforce. Um, not all of, you know, some of them were going to become teachers. Uh, so, uh, you know, that's that's part of the workforce. Uh, uh, but, you know, uh, the the, the skills that uh, we need in our modern economy uh, are vast and varied, and we don't, you know, we don't need a hundred thousand historians probably, but we don't need, uh, you know, uh, only one kind of, of person or one kind of, of training. Uh, so I've always been a, a, a real believer in, you know, we need to provide multiple pathways and multiple opportunities for people to pursue their their educational goals and which uh, you know then translate into their uh, career and vocational goals as well you know I'm, a, I'm an example I started uh, right out of high school working as a welder and machinist uh, worked with my father in a small uh, steel fabrication shop for about 10 years before I decided to go to college um, I started going at night. Uh, the institution I attended, uh, you know, was very accommodating for a non-traditional student such as myself. Uh, and that, uh, you know, really opened up uh, a lot of doors for me and, and provided me with the pathway uh, that has brought me to where I am now. Um, you know, we need to do that for, for lots of students, for lots of people, uh, whether they you know, they've worked for 10 or 15 years and, and now see they need to find some new training or retraining to uh, adapt uh, because the, the career, the vocation they had chosen, you know, is, is starting to uh, fade away. If they just want to gain new skills for uh, promotion or, or uh, you know, to, uh, to move up in their, their uh, employment in their company. Uh, or even to just change careers. I think that's uh, so much a part of, uh, of our world. Uh, I don't think I'm, uh, I think, yes, I've changed careers three times now in, in my lifetime, and I don't think I'm that, uh, uh, that unique in that respect. Uh, so, you know, providing people with lots of opportunities, lots of on-ramps, uh, lots of ways to find fulfillment uh, in both uh, uh, you know, their, their career and, and their life, uh, I think is, is part of the purpose and the mission of, of post-secondary education.
Well, that's definitely, I mean, that's a word right there, right? It's definitely exactly what we talk about on the podcast all the time with this idea of lifelong learning and it's a journey. So definitely this has been really enlightening and and that really kind of sums up exactly what our philosophy is and what we hope to really bring, which is a lot of value and and bringing all these different perspectives from those that that have their finger on the pulse of what's going on in higher education. So we want to be... Um, cognizant of your time and, and respectful and we really appreciate you spending this time with us because this has given us a ton of insight and a lot of things to think about in terms of the direction of higher education as a sector do you want to maybe this last couple of questions will ask you to be a little bit of a futurist and tell us um first uh what you think the direction of higher education is going to be looking like as we go into these unforeseen uncharted waters and anything about your organization things that resources that you provide or things that you have coming up that maybe we didn't get to talk about that you would like to share just to wrap us up for today sure no i'd be happy to and and thank thank you you again for inviting me to to come on it's been a a real pleasure uh, to, uh, to chat with the both of you thank you um I, I don't think I have any particular insight or uh, you know, foresight into what higher ed is going to look like, uh, other than to say I think it has to change and it will change. Um, there are just simply too many forces arrayed against it for it not to. Um, you know, I'm a historian and I can look back and see there have been kind of these moments of inflection uh, throughout our past where we've seen uh, you know, the, the, the industry, the, the sector that is higher education, uh, you know, begin to change, to, to shed some programs or ways of, of doing things and, and bring new ones on or, or make some adjustments, whether it was, uh, you know, the, the development of land-grant institutions in the 19th century, uh, you know, the advent of the, the community or technical college later in the 20th century, the GI Bill, and uh, you know, bringing more women, more uh, minorities uh, onto the to the campus, and so forth. Uh, I think the key thing uh, that I see in terms of of, of real change, um, I think there will still be the traditional uh, higher ed experience. Uh, a lot of uh, students want that, but I think many of our institutions that are offering that. Uh, that mode of learning are going to have to start adapting and, and adjusting to other modes of learning and other uh, constituents, adult learners, non-traditional students, more part-timers and so forth. Uh, they'll have to look at ways of keeping costs down, uh, whether it's through competency-based or credit through prior learning or, or figuring out how to offer the, the program um, you know, in, in, in a different mode or different style uh, so that, uh, you know, we can, we can keep the, the, the product, the, the, the education affordable. Um, so it's, uh, it, I think it's a little hard to say exactly what it will look like. Um, I think you, one of you mentioned earlier, you know, mergers and acquisitions will probably see some consolidation. Uh, there may be more partnerships uh, we may see the the end of kind of the big sprawling campuses and maybe more smaller, uh, uh, you know, uh, kind of storefront campuses that have lower costs and can go where the students are to, to help them. Uh, so, uh, 
I, I don't feel I'm being terribly profound here other than to say that uh, I'm not sure what the change exactly will look like, but uh, a change is coming and, and I think it, uh, it will come very soon. And for your organization, anything you want to let us know as far as um, resources or initiatives, anything we should be on the lookout from? Uh, we us? are in the process. I think you, you looked at uh, uh, some of our uh, strategic plans. Uh, we've really made a concerted effort over the last couple of months to try to put that into operation to take some concrete steps. Uh, what we're really focused on and, and where we're trying to move forward is uh, seeing if we can increase educational attainment across the uh, entire spectrum, workforce credentials, associate degrees, baccalaureate degrees, uh, graduate degrees, and so forth, uh, so that we can you know, spread that educational attainment across our entire state, but do it in such a way, you know, in an equitable way so that we can help um, you know, those, those groups, uh, those people in uh, areas that haven't been served well by higher ed, uh, you know, rural students, certain zip codes, uh, minorities, uh, racial, ethnic minorities. Uh, you know, we want to do more to help uh, all of our citizens, all of our uh, fellow South Carolinians, uh, you know, have the opportunity to, to fulfill their life and, and uh, career um, choices. So um, I, I don't know that I have much more in terms of, of resources uh, available. You know, we have a host of resources uh, for South Carolinians to apply for uh, financial aid and, and so forth, but uh, keep an eye out. I, I think we're going to uh, take some exciting steps to try and get more people involved and in, in more people uh, engaged in higher ed so that they can reach their, their uh, goals and, and have an opportunity for better life and, and a better uh, career. Hope you enjoyed that episode. To learn more about the EdUp Experience, please visit edupexperience.com. And if you want to be in on the live recordings, please sign up for our email list. Go to edupexperience.com and sign up to be a subscriber. We'll let you know how you can listen in live and get the scoop before anyone else does. So please, as always, feel free to share this podcast, rate, review, and subscribe. We would really, really appreciate that. You've been listening to The EdUp Experience, where we make education your business with your hosts, Dr. Joe Salustio, Elizabeth Liva, and Elvin Freitas.